0: Everyone, nice to see you and happy new year. It's, it's gonna be a good one. In fact, I had my vaccine yesterday and my arm's a little sore, but I really encourage everyone to get the vaccine just as, as soon as you can. You know, uh, I always am frankly amazed about sometimes how lucky we are at the World Affairs Council with our uncanny ability to provide timely programming. And tonight's program is certainly no exception to that record. This afternoon, President Trump was impeached for the second time, a first. And as we watch with sadness how D.C. has become really an armed camp, I think all of us are reflecting on just how we got to where we are today and how do we move forward collectively to heal these deep wounds in our nation. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth for a few more weeks. Many of you know that Liz Brailsford, who is the Chief Operating Officer of the World Affairs Council of America will be my successor and I couldn't be more excited for her or for the council. Our guest tonight is Adam Gentleson. He's the public affairs director at Democracy Forward and he previously served as a senior aide to the former Senate Majority Leader, Harry Reid. In his new book, Switch: The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy, Adam uses his intimate knowledge to explain how the world's greatest deliberative body has come to carry out its work without much greatness or even deliberation, serving instead as a place where legislation goes to die. Now that the Democrats hold the majority, Adam will tell us if things will be different. He's joined tonight in conversation by a very good friend of the World Affairs Council, and that's Matthew Wilson, professor at Southern Methodist University. I want to remind you that you can purchase a copy of Kill Switch at Interabang or support your independent bookstore, wherever, whatever is your community. Uh, Also to keep up with all of our programs, I hope that you'll go to our website at dfwworld.org. We've had a quiet month, but it's gonna pick up really fast. This program would not be possible without the support of SMU Dedman College of Humanities and Science. We're very grateful to them and all the support that we have with SMU. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Wilson. He's the director of the Center for Faith and Learning, and he's an associate professor of political science at Southern Methodist University. He's also a senior fellow of the Tower Center for Public Policy and International Affairs, and he earned his doctorate in political science, Durham, at Duke University. And uh, his research focuses on public opinion, elections, and the role of race in religion and politics. So I really couldn't think of a, a better person, Adam, for you to have uh, a wonderful conversation, and I look forward to listening. Gentlemen, the program is yours.
1: All right, thank you very much, Jim. I'm, I'm pleased to uh, be able to moderate this conversation tonight and look forward to, to getting into some of the really interesting points that uh, Adam makes in his book. First of all, let me just reiterate uh, quickly a bit of what Jim said uh, about Adam. Adam uh holds a a BA in uh, American history from Columbia University and is currently the public affairs director at Democracy Forward. Uh, He was previously the deputy chief of staff to Senate Democratic leader, Uh, Harry Reid. So he brings a wealth of personal experience as well as just uh, academic study to the question of how the Senate works. He also has an extensive track record of uh, publishing op eds and commenting in a variety of media sources, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, GQ, Politico, uh, and other sources. So we're just really, really pleased to have uh, Adam with us this evening. And um, I wanna kind of dive right in, Adam, and invite you to uh, lay out for our audience, for those who may not have read your book, uh, a little bit of the kind of broad outlines of the story that you tell. And I wanna kind of start at the beginning and ask if you could walk us through how we first started to see filibusters or things that looked like filibusters in the United States Senate. Because uh, as you document in the book, in the very earliest days of the Republic, we really didn't have a filibuster. How did that emerge and start to get used in the 19th century?
2: Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. And thank you, Matthew, and thank you, Jim, for, for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Um, so this is, this is uh, you know sort of the starting point for, for everything that, that came after. And I think it's, it's an important uh, foundation to, to set for this discussion, which is that in the beginning of the Senate, there was no filibuster and this wasn't a coincidence or sort of happenstance or sort of the absence of something that was expected to come later. This was by design. Um, The framers were extremely clear that the Senate should be an intimate chamber. Uh, It was designed to be the cooling saucer of myth uh, for sure. Um, And it was supposed to be a place where debate was free and open and unstructured um, and, and moved at a slower pace than the more rough and tumble house. But one thing that they were very clear about, uh, despite all of these um, special considerations, was the need for the majority to be able to move forward on a vote when they decided it was time to do so. Um, so, you know, James Madison, the the founder who is mo- most often cited as as being uh, careful and and um, t- you know a, a protector of, of minority factions. Um, Even James Madison wrote extensively about the need for the majority to be able to make a decision when it was time to do so. And I think it's important to ground this in the reality that the the framers were working in at the time. Um, They were writing the constitution of course in the shadow of the Articles of Confederation. And the primary reason that most of the framers believed the Articles of Confederation had failed was because it required a supermajority for action on most major pieces of legislation, uh, categories including taxation, uh, military, uh, and basically everything that that really mattered at that time. So, you know, having seen the failure of that requirement, the framers were were deeply attuned to what happens if you give a minority the ability to block what the majority wants to do. Uh, In Federalist 10, which is often cited as Madison's uh, most articulate um, description of the protection for minorities, he explains that minority factions should have a right uh, to make themselves heard. They should have a right to have input into the process. But in that same tract in Federalist 10, he also describes majority rule as what he calls the Republican principle uh, and explains that a majority at the end of the day should be able to decide on an issue. So it wasn't a coincidence that the filibuster didn't exist in the early Senate. Um, in addition to sort of those philosophical and principle foundations, the framers uh, uh, created several very strict rules limiting debate. Uh, Five of the original 19 Senate rules placed restrictions on debate. One of the most important was something called the previous question motion, which gave the majority the ability uh, to call an end to debate if it decided it needed to do so. Um, Thomas Jefferson, who as uh, vice president, wrote the first manual for procedure governing both the House and Senate, had an entire section called Order and Debate, in which he explained that members were not expected to, to debate, but not to debate what he called superfluously. And that when they were, when they started to do so, there were a range of options for members to quiet them down, including just starting to talk over the members and uh, make it clear that their time was up. Um, so it's very important to establish that the early the ethic of the first Senate was that debate should be thorough, it should be thoughtful, but when it when you know sort of a reasonable person standard Uh, when senators had decided an issue had run its course, uh, it should be ended. Then comes John Calhoun. uh, And John Calhoun is the leading innovator of the filibuster. Historians disagree about when exactly the first filibuster was, um, but but there's broad consensus that Calhoun uh, created what we would now describe as the modern filibuster. Uh, He did this starting, he came to the Senate in the 1830s, Um, And then starting in the 1830s and 1840s, he had a a acute need to increase the power of the minority in the Senate. And the reason he needed to increase the power of the minority in the Senate was to protect the slave power. Um, These were his primary patrons as a senator from South Carolina. uh, And the slave power was starting to become outnumbered, uh, not just in the number of states and the number of senators, uh, but in the overall uh, public opinion. And so Calhoun was driven by a strong motivation to increase the power of the minority to block the majority. And so, you know, in contrast to the Madisonian vision of the Senate, which was a deliberative, thoughtful body where at the end of the day, the majority ruled, Calhoun started developing his own theory. Uh, And he wrote this extensively in what he called his disquisition on government that was published after his death. Uh, In that disquisition, he explained that it was his belief that a minority should have the ability to exercise a veto power over anything that it opposed, and so it was based on that principle that he started to innovate what we now would call the filibuster, and he did this basically by what you would associate with sort of the Jimmy Stewart style filibuster of uh, talking at length on the floor of getting a group of senators together uh, to to delay a bill that they opposed. Um, it didn't even have a name while Calhoun was alive. Uh, it took several decades, uh, even after Calhoun passed away, for the filibuster name to come into common use. So it was that new and it was that unusual at the time that even after Calhoun started to make this innovation, it still didn't have a name until around the 1850s. So you know, several decades after the Senate had, had been in existence. So that's, that's where the filibuster first started, was, was you know, uh, a minority of senators uh, desperate to, to overcome the power of the majority. Um, John Calhoun was the leading innovator. Uh, and it was really his, his marriage of this idea of minority rights with uh, the tactics of obstruction uh, that laid the groundwork for what we what we
1: now describe as the filibuster. Well, and I do definitely want to get uh, fairly quickly to present-day circumstances, but I have a couple more uh, historical questions first, just so you can kind of lay out things uh, for our audience about the evolution here that you trace in your book. Uh, you make a very interesting point in the book about how, ironically, it was a rule that was intended to limit debate that came to be the birth of the modern filibuster. And can you explain how that kind of counterintuitive result came to be?
2: Yes, yes, this is a, it's, this is a very, uh, this question gets immediately down to the weeds of Senate procedure, but but uh, I think you know, we, we can go there with this with this audience. Um, so in 1917, uh, Woodrow Wilson is trying to get Congress to pass a bill to arm American merchant ships um, you know, as, as a preliminary step towards entry into World War I. Um, in March of 1917, the House uh, passes this bill very quickly by overwhelming majorities. It appears to have overwhelming majorities in the Senate. Um, it, its backers estimated somewhere in the 70s, um, at a time when the Senate was still around 90 90 members. Um, but uh, a senator from Wisconsin named Fighting Bob Lafollette, uh, an ardent progressive, and I should be clear that, that the filibuster was used historically also by progressives, not just by pro-slavery forces, although definitely... Uh, uh, much more by, by pro slavery forces um, over, you know, in comparison to anything. But anyway, uh, Fighting Bob Lafollette stages a three-day filibuster uh, that pushes Congress past the adjournment deadline. Back then, you know, today it's January 3rd. That's why Congress came back in the session on January 3rd. Back then it was March 3rd. And so, uh, you know, when you're past the adjournment j- deadline, that clears the decks. Um, it's an automatic hard stop. And so the filibuster took us past that deadline. The bill was scuttled, uh, and Wilson had to start again. This filibuster prompted a massive public outcry. Uh, There was a banner headline in the New York Times, I think one of the only uh, historical instances of a banner headline about Senate rules. Uh, This prompted President Wilson's famous statement, uh, accusation calling the Senate a small group of willful men. Um, And there was massive public pressure uh, for the Senate to to overcome this filibuster. In the face of this public pressure, the Senate reconvenes a few days later. Um, It quickly creates a rule that is called Rule 22, um, and that rule was intended, as its, as its creators clearly stated, uh, they called it a rule to, quote, terminate successful filibustering. What this rule did is it put a supermajority threshold on Senate books for the first time. Um, prior to this, supermajority thresholds had been observed exclusively for the uses that were enumerated in the Constitution, such as uh, removal in the Senate uh, after an impeachment trial, um, constitutional amendments, uh, and a few other minor things. This is back. ratification of
1: treaties, for example.
2: Exactly, yeah. and so you know, this is back to the framers being very clear. <laughs> you know that they wanted everything else to be majority rule, so they enumerated the uses of a supermajority. So rule twenty-two, though, puts a supermajority back on the books. Um, I should I should circle back for one second. That rule that I mentioned, the previous question motion that gave the original Senate the ability for a majority to end debate, that got scrubbed from the books in eighteen o six. Uh, and what historians have decided was a mistake. Um, it's a complicated story, but basically the Senate was cleaning up its rule books. It never used this rule because the prevailing ethic, as we talked about, was for senators not to obstruct. So this rule was never deployed. They thought, you know, it was it was unbecoming of senators to even have it on the books. It was so considered so beneath them to think that anybody would obstruct, they get rid of this rule in 1806. And, and that was the opportunity that Calhoun was able to exploit later on to create the filibuster in the first place. So fast forward back to 1917, what they do is they they try to put a version of that rule back on the books uh, to give a group of senators the ability to call a debate to an end when they decided it had gone from persuasion to straight obstruction. Um, They decided to set the threshold for that vote to end debate at a supermajority. This was a point of contention within the committee that developed the rule. And there was actually a majority in favor of setting it at a majority. We won't get into that. But the point is, uh, even at the time, a lot of senators favored setting that threshold back at a majority.
1: Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu.
2: But the idea was to be totally clear that what this rule did was when you know, reasonable senators could observe that a debate had ceased to become aimed at persuasion and had started to serve the purpose exclusively of obstruction, you would reliably be able to find two-thirds of senators who could come together, regardless of their stance on the issue at hand, and say, we think it's time to wrap this up. This is like the five-minute warning rule, basically, telling your kids you know, five minutes until you have to turn off the TV. This is saying, in the Senate, it was actually three days, left three more days of debate, and then we have to go to a vote on this issue, and the vote will be up or down majority threshold, but the vote to end debate and move to that final passage vote will be a supermajority. So this was the rule, it was designed as a backstop when debate and obstruction got out of hand that reasonable senators could reach for to wrap up that debate and move the issue along to a majority vote. So that was what was put on the books. That is, what we ne- that is the same rule that today causes every bill in the Senate for the most part to have to pass a threshold of 60 votes. But when it was created in 1917, it was created for the explicit purpose of ending obstruction and of ending debate.
1: Well, because what they didn't anticipate was that a significant number of senators would come to see obstruction as a legitimate tactic, right? And, and so that- well, that's
2: exactly right. And that's, and, and once again, the issue, you know, to, to have innovation, you have to have motivation, right? And so mm-hmm. once again, the issue that drove senators and provided the motivation to create procedural innovations here was the oppression of Black Americans. Uh, in this case, it was the maintenance of Jim Crow. And so after 1917, uh, Southern senators had a powerful motivation to, just like Calhoun had done, to find a way to increase the power of the minority to block what the majority wanted to do. Civil rights provided this motivation. At the time, uh, there were two civil rights issues that were gaining massive traction with Congress and with the American public. That was uh, federal anti-lynching laws uh, and early versions of anti-poll tax laws. So starting in the 1920s, anti-lynching laws started to pass the House By enormous margins uh, and come over to the Senate. You had presidents of both parties uh, from the period of the 1920s all through the 1960s who were ready to sign those anti-lynching laws. And by all historical accounts, you had majorities in the Senate who were prepared to support these anti-lynching laws. So just like Calhoun in his time had had a strong motivation to innovate, Southern senators of their time in the Jim Crow era had to find a way to block these civil rights bills that were coming down the pike. And what they did they reached for this new rule, Rule 22, and they started to talk about that vote to end debate, that wrap it up vote. They started to talk about it as if it were a holy principle uh, that was attuned to the deepest traditions of the Senate. Uh, they started to talk about it as an assault on free speech to end debate. Uh, again, this is wholly alien to the idea of the Senate. Um, we're not talking about ending debate, you know, after five minutes. Uh, we're talking about you know seeking to end debate after weeks, sometimes months. Of an issue being talked about after it had clearly run its course, but they started to frame this procedural hurdle uh, not as the tool that it had been intended as as a, as a vote to say for reasonable people to say, okay, time to wrap it up. Southern senators started to say cloture, that, uh, which in itself, the etymology of the word is closure. Um, that vote to wrap it up, southern senators started to say it was it was apostasy uh, to vote to shut down debate. Um, and so, from the period of the end of Reconstruction until the first filibuster against civil rights was broken in 1964, this 87-year period, uh, the only issue that was killed by the filibuster were these civil rights bills that were coming over from the House.
1: So so let's go to that era, uh, and this will be the last kind of historical question before I shift to the present day, but it's one that has a particular uh, relevance for our Texas audience, because uh, at one Section of the book, interesting section, you talk about Lyndon Johnson and the role that Lyndon Johnson played in the perpetuation of the filibuster and particularly a very interesting discussion of the interplay between Richard Russell and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about how those dynamics unfolded in the 1950s and 1960s and the role that Lyndon Johnson played in creating the kind of modern instantiation of the filibuster?
2: Yes, so this is a fascinating sort of master apprentice story. Um, Richard Russell of Georgia, was uh, in his day, that's the two of them there. Um, I, I believe this is when Johnson was president. So this is the the student becoming the master in this in this photo here. That's Richard Russell, who's being stared down by Johnson. Um, Russell uh, came to the Senate in the 1930s. He quickly established himself as the most powerful senator of either party. Um, another point I talk about in the book is that the Senate was supposed to be a leaderless chamber. Um, the sort of you know top-down control we see today was alien to it. Um, And Russell sort of embodied that because despite being the most powerful senator of either party, he held no formal leadership role. Uh, He acquired this leadership reputation simply by knowing parliamentary procedure better than anybody else. Uh, He also led more filibusters against civil rights bills than any other senator over his 30, 40-year career. Um, Russell uh, took Johnson under his wing. Johnson, uh, as as folks here might know, had had a reputation uh, and extreme skill at ingratiating himself with powerful uh, older men who were the leaders of the chambers in which he resided. When he was in the House, he became very close with Sam Rayburn, who was the Speaker of the House. uh, And Sam Rayburn became like a father figure to him. When Johnson came over into the Senate, uh, he uh, formed the same kind of a relationship with Richard Russell. Uh, Johnson's maiden speech on the Senate floor in 1949 was a passionate defense of uh, the cloture rule, a passionate defense. He explained that that uh, cloture was, was akin to the First Amendment. He said that if he could give any freedom uh, to the countries behind the Iron Curtain, the freedom that he would extend to them was the right of unlimited debate in their chambers. Um, this was uh, an explicit attempt to ingratiate himself with Russell and the uh, Southerners. He he called Russell before the speech. He gave him a copy, and Russell made sure that all the other Southern senators were in their chamber to hear this new senators made in speech. And so... Uh, Johnson's close relationship with Russell is what gave him the backing and the power to become majority leader and then to invest that position with authority and power for the first time. Um, you know, Johnson couldn't decide whether he even wanted to take the job. The job was so powerless. As I said, it was created in the 1920s. Uh, and until Johnson took that job, the job of majority leader or minority leader were basically clerical jobs, uh, sort of, you know, keeping track of the caucus's business keeping track of what bills came to the floor, but never determining what bills came to the floor.
1: Um, and- Well, because know, senators don't want to be led, right? I mean- That's exactly right, yeah. Party discipline in the Senate that you have in the House. That's exactly right. And that's what the Senate was supposed to be.
2: And and Russell made it very clear that no leader of any party had any more leash than he was willing to give. And Johnson, before he took the job, had witnessed uh, several leaders become totally humiliated by Russell when they when they crossed him. So. Uh, It was, he had a long dark night of the soul uh, before he was decided that he wanted this job, Um, but he did decide to take it. And it was Russell's backing that allowed him to become the majority leader only three or four years after he entered the Senate. Uh, And then it was also Russell's backing that allowed him to actually invest this job with authority and power.
1: So let's then think about how since that era, the filibuster has changed in some ways. And you, you go through this in your book. So of course, for one thing, it has shed a lot of its associations with, with white supremacy, racism, et cetera. In recent decades, that's not what the filibuster is principally used for, it's, it's other things. Um, also, we've seen limitations on the filibuster introduced in various ways, right? The threshold for cloture has been dropped from 67 to 60. Uh, nominations to the courts can no longer be filibustered. Senate has developed ways to use reconciliation to avoid filibusters on budget bills, on taxing and spending measures. So there are a variety of limitations that have emerged on a kind of pure minoritarian uh, filibuster. Um, Nonetheless, clearly you don't think that those are enough, right? That that those limitations on the filibuster don't go far enough in in the majoritarian direction. are there any limitations on the filibuster short of its outright elimination that that you think would be sufficient? So for example, what if we actually made people once again, actually filibuster, like get up and debate, as opposed to the kind of automatic dial it in filibuster that you mentioned in the modern incarnation? W- would that be sufficient? Or is that not enough?
2: I fully support that. I think that's a great idea. Um, mm-hmm. I think that you know, the filibuster, its connection to debate needs to be restored. I mean, one of, the, one of the very damaging things about the way the filibuster is used today, I get into this in the book, is that it, it kills debate. Um, it eliminates it. Senators don't have to debate to block a bill. The Senate was supposed to be a place where a senator is persuaded, where they, where they tried to, you know, get a majority behind their own cons. And today, you don't have to take the floor to wage a filibuster. Um, we could talk about this more, but but you know, all it takes is a phone call or an email from your office. It doesn't have to be from the senator themselves to the cloakroom, and you know, the threshold. Which to, even to this day, the actual threshold for passage of a bill in the Senate is a simple majority. But that phone call from your office to the cloakroom places that procedural hurdle in the way and causes any bill to have to clear that 60-vote hurdle before it can get to the simple majority vote. Uh, and so, the ease of use. The fact that a senator can do this with a phone call or do this with an email is what is so damaging. They never have to explain themselves if they don't want to. They never have to take the floor. Uh, they never have to explain to the public why they are uh, opposing this bill and forcing it to overcome this threshold. So I, I fully support the idea of restoring the talking filibuster. Ironically, I think that is what most Americans associate with the filibuster. When, when right. they think of the term, they think of Jimmy Stewart. You know? And so I think that um, restoring that that kind of open debate Um, If someone wants to block a bill by, by waging debate. Yeah, there you go. Um, this was the movie that, that this was the role that launched his career, um, Mr. Smith. So, um, and it's, it's actually interesting. I'll go off on a tangent about this for a second, but, um, the, the story behind Mr. Smith is loosely based on a, on a real story and it's somewhat ironic because the Senator that it's based on the, the tools that he used to, uh, uncover corruption in the Pacific Northwest uh, actually had nothing to do with the filibuster in real life. It was committee investigations and committee hearings uh, that uncovered the corruption. However, that's much less uh, dramatic and cinematic than the filibuster. So we have that in, that uh, decision to stage this in a dramatic way to thank for the public perception of, of what the filibuster is. Um, but, but this is, you know, we, we, can, we can count on our hands now the number of times we've seen this happen on the Senate floor. I think it would be a, a very good thing for the Senate to restore that kind of open debate, because when, when you're doing that kind of debate, the other thing about it is that it's extemporaneous. Um, and one of the things that's lacking in the Senate today is any kind of open and free exchange. When senators talk on the floor, they bring scripted remarks that were written by their staff. I used to write some of those remarks myself. Uh, and oftentimes the senators are standing there on the floor, reading these speeches and seeing the words for the first time as they read them out loud into the congressional record. You know? and if you turn on C-SPAN-2 any, any day, that's what you're liable to see. If, if you see any action on the floor at all, you know, what you'll probably see is a senator standing there sort of, you know, uh, sadly reading out prepared remarks. If there are other senators in the chamber, they're not paying attention to the senator who's speaking. Um, there's no effort to persuade, there's no exchange. The senator reads their remarks. When they're done, they leave the chamber. You know, the only time that senators are- Of course, that's the,
1: also true in the House, right? Where they don't have a filibuster, so- uh, That's
2: absolutely true. And that's been, see, that's an irony of this is that a lot of the opponents of reform will say that uh, uh, getting rid of the filibuster will make the Senate like the House. And a counter to that argument is that right now the Senate is almost exactly like the House. The only difference is a supermajority co- requirement, which allows the minority to, to block everything that it wants to. Um, I think what we need to do to restore the Senate is to restore debate, restore lively exchanges, uh, democratize leadership, uh, take the power that's been invested in these top-down leadership structures away and return it to rank-and-file senators, you know, so that when the Senate convenes on a given day, you don't know who's going to speak. You don't know what bills are going to be brought up. Uh, you don't know what's going to come of the debate that might take place. Uh, that
1: was what the Senate was supposed to be, and I think that's where we need to go today. So to be clear then on your your position, you would be okay with retaining a 60-vote cloture threshold as long as people had to actually debate? I think that if,
2: if, you ha- if the, the mechanism by which you sustain the threshold is actual debate, uh, I think that would be okay as long as when the senators stopped debating, the threshold came down. Um, Senator Tom Harkin of Iowa had a proposal similar to this where he uh, proposed you know, starting the threshold at 60 mm-hmm. and then over a certain amount of time it would come down you know, to 55, down to 50. Uh, I think that something like that would, would uh, be something that I would support. I think the key that I'm focused on is you have to take away the ability of the minority to, in a, for a purely political motivation, block everything that the other side wants to do. Um, I think this is especially important in these partisan polarized times. Uh, you know, A phenomenon that political scientists have documented now for decades is that in narrowly divided majorities, which the Senate is likely to have for the foreseeable future, because it doesn't look like either party is going to get anywhere more than you know, 54, 55 seat majorities, these narrowly divided majorities create a perverse incentive where the party that's out of power knows that it can likely take back the majority in the very next election. And so rather than increasing incentives for bipartisanship and narrowly divided Senates, the minority has a strong political incentive to make the party in power look bad. And so this is exactly what the framers warned about. This is exactly what they had seen with the Articles of Confederation. And so what I want to do with reform and what I propose in the book is taking away that ability to throw the kill switch and to shut down anything that the majority wants to do. If they, If the minority opposes it, they should absolutely be guaranteed a role in the process, they should be guaranteed the Senate floor to make their case, Uh, they should be guaranteed ample time to use whatever resources they want to do in this modern communications era um, to make their make their efforts of persuasion. But at the end of the day, you know, the fundamental purpose of the Senate is not to maintain any of these particular rules. Its fundamental purpose is to produce thoughtful policy solutions to the challenges we face. And so you have to restore its ability to actually get things done without the minority being able to throw
1: a monkey wrench in it at every turn. So just to make clear uh, to everybody how this would work procedurally, if there were going to be changes to the filibuster rule or elimination of the ability to filibuster, that in and of itself could be done by a simple majority, correct? That is, one cannot filibuster the rules uh, to to the Senate. Is that correct? That's
2: right. I mean, the Senate Senate rules are designed to to be very deferential to a majority of the Senate, the idea being that this majority represents the the will of the body itself. Mm -hmm. So... You know the irony is to, to lower the threshold from sixty. All you need is a is a simple majority. Uh, that is the method that Senator Reid used when I worked for him to get away get, do away with the sixty vote threshold for uh, nominations in twenty thirteen, mm-hmm. and then Senator McConnell in twenty seventeen affirmed that precedent when he used it to lower the threshold for uh, Supreme Court nominations. When when Reid did his reform, he he exempted Supreme Court nominees from the lowering, so the threshold mm-hmm. for them remained at sixty votes. When Gorsuch was nominated, McConnell deployed the same method to, to sort of fill that loophole and, and lower the Supreme Court threshold back down to 50. So it's been used by both parties. It's been affirmed. When President Bush was in office, Republicans um, put forward this idea uh, during that nuclear push. So it's, it's become well accepted by this point that a majority can vote to lower the threshold and change the Senate rules in any way at once,
1: really. Right. So what would you say to um liberals who might look at that and say, but you see, that was the problem, right? If only we still had the filibuster for Supreme Court nominations, we wouldn't have Brett Kavanaugh. We wouldn't have Amy uh, Carney Barrett. Uh, so shouldn't we want to preserve the filibuster? Would you tell them that's just too bad you get more than you give by getting rid of this? I mean, well, how would you respond to that?
2: Yeah, I, I have two answers to that. One one is that uh, you know, liberals uh, and being a liberal myself, I, this is part of why I favor it, liberals benefit more than conservatives by lowering the threshold. Um, this has been shown historically. It's it's not, I mean, you know, we talked about the, the filibuster's use against civil rights. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, you know, a very clear example, but even once the filibuster started to become used on other issues, it was primarily used to stop uh, liberal issues. This isn't really, you know, uh, a radical proposition. It's just the nature of the parties. Uh, the liberal side tends to want to pass big legislation uh, to expand the social safety net, um, to to, enact democracy reforms. Uh, That's the nature of how liberals wield power. It tends to be through the use of expansive legislation um, uh, uh, to uh, to advance their goals. Conservatives, and William F. Buckley's famous phrasing, are the party that stands athwart history yelling stop. And procedurally, many of the goals that they want to achieve can be achieved, first of all, by stopping uh, big government uh, legislation, uh, and second of all, uh, by rolling back regulations, um, You know, which a lot of which can be done without legislation. There is still lots of legislation that conservatives would want to pass, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting during the first two years of the Trump administration was that when Republicans had unified control of the government for the, those two years, they really didn't pass much in terms of legislation. Um, their their main campaign promise was to re- repeal Obamacare, and they failed to do that. And they failed to do that at a majority threshold. This gets into reconciliation, which you which you mentioned, and we can talk about since it's being discussed as a possibility for for President Biden, but. Republicans used reconciliation to bring their bill to repeal the Affordable Care Act to the floor at a simple majority vote. So this example kind of proves the case, which is that they didn't have to get 60 votes for this. All they needed to muster is a majority. So it it was as if the filibuster didn't exist for this bill, and they were still unable to get a majority. Part of what that shows, I think, uh, oh, yeah, and this is the famous moment when, when John McCain walked onto the Senate floor. That's John McCain there, um, standing towards the bottom of the screen, and Mitch McConnell with his arms crossed, uh, staring daggers at him. Um, you know, no one knew how McCain was going to vote in this moment. He, he was off in his hideaway, which are the private offices that senators have, um, with, huddled with his staff, trying to figure out how he's going to vote. I also love up here in the top left corner, you can see uh, Senator Chuck Schumer. I believe that's Amy Klobuchar next to him, mm-hmm. and then Dick Durbin over to the right, uh, seeming to be having a, a pretty good time. Um, so McCain comes to the floor, I think it was two o'clock in the morning at this point, uh, takes a hard look at McConnell uh, and then extends his arm and then just puts his thumb down like that after a dramatic pause um, and McConnell quickly stares down at his shoes and, and slinks off. So the point is, you know, for all intents and purposes, for that repeal effort, the filibuster did not exist and Republicans were unable to muster a majority it is much harder to get a majority than people generally think. And that was part of Madison's point. You know, We have this, this complicated system of checks and balances. Even if you take the filibuster out of the equation, the US system of government still has more veto players, as political scientists call it, than other modern democracies. And the way Madison saw it was this system would provide sufficient protection to the minority, but within that system itself, each decision point should be, should be majority rule. Uh,
1: let me quickly remind uh, people, if you do have questions uh, that you'd like to pose, please feel free to put them in the, the Q&A section. We'll, we'll try to get those raised. But let me ask you uh, then this, this follows on something you just said. Uh, would you agree that the existence of the filibuster in the Senate has in fact, in some ways, prompted a rise in executive power, in presidential power? Because my sense is, is that both President Obama and President Trump, and perhaps some before them as well, but especially President Obama and President Trump, both felt like the best way to achieve change is to use executive orders because trying to get something through the Senate with a 60 vote threshold is well nigh impossible. And so the existence of the filibuster therefore encourages presidents to to govern by executive order. Is that a legitimate point? That is
2: a very legitimate point. I think it's absolutely true. Um, You know, champions of the legislative branch like myself should favor reform for this reason because it will restore the primacy or at least Uh, something closer to primacy of the legislative branch. Uh, If you have a a gridlocked Senate where the party that opposes you can throw a monkey wrench in the system and stop anything that you wanna do, presidents are left with very few tools. And I, I do not favor the, you know, I favor the use of executive actions if the Congress is completely gridlocked and there's no other option, but I would much prefer to see a functioning Congress where legislation is passed through regular order, where the committees are re-empowered, where senators are free to bring up amendments uh, and have a free and open debate. I think that's a much healthier way to do this. And you know, the irony of this debate, I think, is a lot of times the proponents of reform get tagged as, as the radicals, but what's really radical here is how gridlocked and dysfunctional our government has become. Uh, and you know, I, I go back, and I mentioned this in the book, to, to Henry Clay, the great compromiser. Um, He was the progenitor of reform and of trying to get rid of the filibuster. When he saw John Calhoun start to invent this tool of obstruction, Henry Clay was horrified. Uh, There was an episode in 1841 where Henry Clay was trying to advance a bank bill, and Calhoun waged one of the first major filibusters in Senate history. Clay, after seeing what was happening, decided that this was such a dangerous thing and so antithetical to the purpose of the Senate that he immediately tried to get rid of it and to uh, end debate through a majority vote. What he did, in fact, was try to restore that previous question rule that the Senate had scrubbed from the books back in 1806. So, you know, the tradition of reforming of reforming the Senate and trying to restore majority debate dates all the way back to Henry Clay. Um, he he did not succeed in that effort. He seemed to have the votes, but then Calhoun was able to maneuver him basically by running out the clock. Into picking either the bank bill or the reform effort, and so Clay decided to get the bank bill um, instead of the more abstract goal of reform. Uh, but but you know during the, the Senate's golden age, a lot of the things that we associate with the height of of Senate greatness were passed by majority rule. The Missouri the Missouri Compromise passed by a four vote margin. Uh, you know back in the Constitutional conveni- Convention, the Great Compromise that created the Senate itself. Passed by a one-vote margin, so it, we have to restore the ability of the Senate to get things done. Uh, if we don't do that, we have a crippled body uh, that will lead to a massive uh, shift of power to the executive and also to the judiciary. By the way, um, you know the, the role of the judiciary in, in lawmaking uh, has exceeded dramatically because you have a dysfunctional legislative branch.
1: Right. So, uh, in in our Q and A, Nancy raises an interesting question. She raises the issue of the power of a Senate majority leader, uh, and and. To me, this, this is intriguing because um, couldn't we argue that if we didn't have the filibuster that the Senate majority leader could actually be more powerful than he or she is today in the sense that it would be really up to that one individual to decide what does or doesn't uh, come to the, the floor of the Senate? Do you see eliminating the filibuster as strengthening the hand of the majority leader in the Senate? It depends
2: on how you do it. And and as I advocate in the book, I think that we should couple filibuster reform with other reforms to democratize leadership in the Senate, uh, which is not that hard to do. Um, the this leadership in the Senate uh, exists on a much more um, tenuous basis than it does in the House. You know, The Speaker of the House is a position created by the Constitution, uh, is endowed with massive power because it basically controls the Rules Committee, which in the House sets the terms of debate for every single bill. Um, mm-hmm. In the Senate there is no such um, as, as we discussed you know there, there were no leaders in the beginning uh, and there is no such formal power its power exists through a layered system of norms and obedience and some precedents like the idea of right of first recognition so the entire in the house the reason that speaker sets the agenda is the rules committee votes out a, a rule that goes with each bill and says this is how this vote is this is how this bill is going down here's the the amount of time we're going to debate it, here are the number of amendments, you know, sets the rules for everything about this bill. In the Senate, the only reason the majority gets to, the majority leader gets to set the agenda is something called the Garner precedent, which dates to 1937, which gives them the right of first recognition. So when multiple senators are trying to gain recognition on the floor, the majority leader is the one who's first recognized. Once they're recognized, they bring a bill to the floor and then they do a thing called filling the tree, which uh, became somewhat famous among Congress watchers under my boss's tenure, uh, under Senator Reed, because he started using this tool far more than any previous leader. It's it's a weird phrase, and what it what it means is the tree describes the chart that the cloakroom keeps to tell you which bills are pending and ready to be bought to the brought to the floor. It it's called a tree because it you know looks like a tree, and the branches there's eleven branches, and each one you can you know fill in a bill. The way the majority leader controls the floor is, they bring up the bill that they want to see uh, be voted on, and then they take dummy uh, placeholder amendments and put those in every other branch of this chart called the tree. That's called filling the tree. Um, so that's, you know, that's the power of the majority leader. It's very tenuous. So if you were to do something like uh, weaken the power of, fir- of right of first recognition, uh, if you were to pass rules that, that stopped the majority leader from filling the tree uh, and, and that enforced the idea that those other branches of the tree should remain open for other senators to put bills and amendments on, uh, you could very easily start to deconstruct their power. So, so to get back to the question, I do think that that eliminating the filibuster by itself could empower uh, the majority leader more than you, you would want to see. But that's why I think it's very important to couple it with reforms that will democratize uh, the leadership structures in the Senate and make it uh, much easier for rank-and-file senators to bring bills to the floor so that the Senate can act on anything any any senator wants to do rather than only being able to act on what the majority leader decides the Senate should act
1: on. So one of our uh, commenters raises the question about the kind of whipsaw back and forth of executive orders as different parties take power. And we see you know, a Republican president puts in executive orders that are all immediately overturned when a Democratic president takes over. And then you know, he puts in executive orders and then a Republican president comes in and overturns all the Democratic president's executive orders. Um, in the absence of the filibuster, wouldn't we see that back and forth be more likely in the Senate as well? Because 51 senators of one party could overturn what 51 senators of the other party had just done maybe you regard that as not such a bad thing, or, or do you think that that's actually not what we'd be likely to see?
2: I, I th- it's theoretically possible, but I think in reality, it would not uh, be as prevalent as people fear. Um, the reason is that I think it takes a lot of capital to, uh, you know, overturning by executive order is one thing, but overturning by legislation takes an enormous amount of time and capital. You would have to, you know, start, you basically spend your first 100 days only repealing what the previous administration had done, which is not a great way to use your political capital. You see President like Biden not even wanting to or being somewhat reluctant about doing impeachment at all because he, you know, presidents want to hit the ground running with their positive agenda. Uh, the other thing I would point to is the the failed effort to repeal Obamacare again, where, you know, this was a central campaign promise. Republicans had been running on it for seven years. And as soon as they got the power to do it, they failed. And I think, you know, nobody looks at that experience that, that basically took up the first half of the first year of the Trump administration, uh, no one looks at that experience as something that they want to repeat. So, you know, it would be a quagmire that you'd be getting yourself into if you decided to come into office and immediately start trying to repeal what the other side had done. So it is theoretically possible, but I think what's more likely is, you know, there will be some things that they try to roll back or amend or change, but that is, you know, that's always been the case in history where one administration comes in and, and, you know, uh, trims or, or reverses or, uh, you know, uh, uh, in some ways alter some of the work of the previous administration. Uh, but mainly, I think administration will continue to try to advance their own their own agenda. So it's it's a legitimate fear, theoretically, but I think in practice, uh, the political reality is that it would not be a major factor.
1: So we have a couple of questions about Senate majority leaders, and I'd like to kind of build those into a question that I myself have. So it strikes me that when we talk about the two majority leaders that you talk about a lot in your book, that is the modern ones, uh, that is Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell, right? That my sense is that Harry Reid and Mitch McConnell were both remarkably effective at their job and really skilled in advancing the core policy priorities of their parties. And yet my sense is at the same time that neither one of them really got credit for that. That is, you know, Harry Reid is not, beloved as an icon on the left by any means. And Mitch McConnell is curiously actually disliked by a lot of conservatives, even though he's done so much, arguably more than anybody else to to advance conservative policy priorities. What is it about that position of Senate majority leader that in the court of public opinion seems to make it such a thankless job?
2: I think it's a a range of factors. I I think the the fundamental dynamic is that the skills that, enable you to succeed at that job tend not to be the same ones that make you an effective public communicator. Uh, this is fundamentally much more than the Speaker of the House. This is a this is a backroom uh, operator type of job. And uh, I think that you know it also takes an enormous amount of time to climb the ladder uh, to get there. And so senators who tend to be more popular, uh, are often drawn to, to other national ambitions. Um, and you know, so it, it is self-selecting to a certain extent, because to, to succeed, you have to be in the Senate for a long time. Uh, Senator Reid was there for, for nearly 30 years before he ascended to the job of majority leader. Uh, Senator McConnell, uh, even more, he got to the Senate uh, before, uh, two years after Senator Reid did, but um, ascended to the leadership job uh, just after Reid. Um, so you have to be someone who is willing to spend decades sitting on the Senate floor, getting to know the institution, getting to know the members, uh, and slowly climbing the ranks of leadership. Uh, and it, it just doesn't often gel with with uh, the qualities that make someone an effective public communicator. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, senators, you know, you, you serve at the pleasure of your of your membership. You serve at the pleasure of you know forty five or fifty senators in your caucus. And you know that dynamic also uh, is is an important factor because uh, oftentimes the uh, senators who get the most support in their caucus are the workhorses. Uh, they're not the ones out on Meet the Press every weekend. They're not the ones uh, leading the press conferences because uh, you know that's not the nature of their job. So. Senators will often elevate uh, and choose to back senators who, who don't uh, threaten them as much as 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 communicators. So it's a mix of factors, um, but it, it's primarily that 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 one factor that you know th- these are people who are creatures of the Senate floor, um, who who like to spend their time there, uh, who aren't rushing in front of cameras all the time, uh, getting to know the institution, getting to know the rules,
1: uh, and
2: that is what that's what makes somebody a successful leader. But it's not what makes somebody often a, the best. So you're leader.
1: saying somebody like somebody like Bernie Sanders. Or Ted Cruz couldn't effectively do the job of, of majority leader.
2: Yeah, it's a weird mix of, of being uh, everybody's friend, but also being able to push them to do what you need them to do at a given moment. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, Bernie uh, is, is uh, uh, you know his co- his colleagues have a range of opinions on him, but but he's not uh, the sort of person who's going to spend all of his time uh, hanging on the Senate floor, slowly getting to know his colleagues, uh, and then you know, little by little. Of steering them in the direction that he wants them to go in.
1: He also hates deal making and compromise, right? No, I mean, he disdains right. yeah. the
2: idea, no. right? It looks so. it, it takes all kinds. You have to have people pushing the caucus in, in a certain direction. Uh, the same goes for Senator Cruz. But Very but true. the people who you know who, who rise to the top of the leadership ranks tend to be those uh, who you know slowly but surely find a way to bring all of their people in their caucus together, um, and that is a it is a methodical approach. And it, it tends to be not the same type of skills that lead you
1: to be a, a successful, you know, communicator on a national stage. So a um, couple of questions looking forward to the prospects for certain things. With regard to your core item of interest in your book, right, the, the elimination or dramatic restructuring of the filibuster. We've heard, so de- Democrats will now have the thinnest of majorities in the new Senate, right, the 50 plus the vote of Of the vice president. Um, But we've already heard several more centrist Democrats express skepticism about the idea of eliminating the filibuster. So Joe Manchin, for example, has suggested that he is wary of that. Um, In the past, Joe Biden has expressed wariness about the idea of getting rid of the filibuster. Um, So given that, do you think that this is unlikely to happen over the next two years? Or do you think that these people might be brought around?
2: I think you know. Look, as as someone who used to work in leadership, you uh, dealt a lot with whip lists, and you know, Manchin has been very clear about his opposition. A few other senators have been uh, aggressive on that front too. Kristen Sinema from Arizona. But when I look at it, I see a whip list of about three to five people, which to me is a is a good place to start. Um, I think that if you know, and and as you mentioned, President Biden's approach is going to be to first try to seek a bipartisan compromise to pass his agenda and try to get you know, the 60 votes that you would need under current rules. If he's successful in doing that, if there is a, a flourishing of bipartisanship in the next six months to a year, then I think that the steam will you know, come out of any push for reform. And I don't think that uh, it will happen. Um, I think it's more likely that Biden is gonna have a hard time securing 60 votes for most of his major agenda items. Uh, we can, some of them can be done through reconciliation. We can talk about that in a moment but uh, most of what he wants to do can't be done through reconciliation. And so Democrats are going to face a choice, including Democrats like Manchin, relatively early on in his administration, probably sometime around the summer of 2021, where they basically have to choose between pursuing Senate reform uh, and lowering the threshold on the filibuster or essentially giving up on their agenda. And I think that that question is what's going to force this issue to a head. And even senators like Manchin, who've been reluctant, I think, will ultimately have to choose between, you know, getting nothing done or reforming the Senate rules. And, and for me, the, the primary purpose of senators is to deliver results for their constituents. The results should be thoughtful. They should be well-considered. Uh, they should be conducted uh, uh, transparently and through committees and with full public scrutiny. But at the end of the day, we face a lot of challenges as a country. And you know, to continue to be a great nation, we need to be able to Past thoughtful policy solutions. And I think that you know sometime late t- 2021 Democrats will face a choice between uh, giving up on their agenda or reforming the Senate rules. And that is what will ultimately uh, bring the question to a very ac- acute point for uh, folks like Senator Manchin. And I, I believe that ultimately uh, if you've got you know you've got a whip list of three to five and you've got massive public pressure with Biden's entire agenda hanging in the balance, I think that ultimately, uh, if those dynamics are what prevails, that senators will come around.
1: So do you think that filibuster reform can or should be separated from other measures that have been talked about that would enhance democratic power? And here what I'm thinking of is things like new states, D.C. statehood, Puerto Rico statehood, right, that would change the balance of power in the Senate, Uh, packing the court, uh, increasing the number of Supreme Court justices to, at least in the short term, put more liberals and moderates on the court. Um, because Republicans would likely characterize this as a package of efforts to enhance democratic power. They say, see, they got the narrowest of majorities, and all of a sudden, we've got two new states, and the court is packed, and the uh, you know long-term Senate history of the filibuster is done away with. Um, do those things necessarily get treated as a package, or are they separable items?
2: Well, I think it depends on what's the issue that forces the filibuster conversation to a head. Um, you could see it coming to a head on on economic issues. Um, There's some discussion among the Biden administration of pursuing a COVID relief package right out of the gate. Uh, They they might end up doing that through reconciliation, but if they brought a broadly popular, desperately needed package of COVID aid to the floor and they failed to get 60 votes, they would face a choice of watering down that package um, or going nuclear and changing Senate rules to pass it. So you know if 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 it's an economic issue that brings the the conversation to a head, I don't think it'll, it'll it'll always be characterized as a power grab because you're you're making this big change to pass something that the party in power wants to pass, but but it won't have those that other baggage that that you discussed. Um, however, I do think that those issues you mentioned are probably the most likely ones to bring the conversation to a head. Uh, to me, these are sort of the issues where you have an, an uh, immovable object, meaning an unstoppable force, where Democrats cannot give up on uh these democracy reforms uh, including dc statehood uh, and republicans can't let them pass so i think that that's that is the place you're most likely to see uh this this dynamic prevail Um, i'm sure republicans will characterize them as a power grab i think it's unfortunate that things like uh, extending statehood to a district that's as big as wyoming and and close to several other states uh, and is you know, back to the principle of taxation without representation uh, is bound by federal law, but has no ability to shape that federal law. You know, it, it probably will elect two democratic senators, uh, but that's just the nature of the beast. Um, you know, people have talked about extending state to Puerto Rico. It's, it's less clear that there's a demand for it there, but uh, I would support a self-determination if Puerto Rico wants to become a state, I would support that, but it's not at all clear that Puerto Rico would elect two democratic senators. Um, but I would still, you know, support that that democracy reform. Um, I can't think of any places that that seem like they would automatically elect Republican senators. But on the basis of principle, I would I would support extending statehood to areas that are bound by federal law. Um, so this isn't a question of, of partisan power. It's just a question of doing the right thing. Um, to to you know, we saw the need for it this this week, where D.C. was unable to send in the National Guard uh, to to stop the rioters. Because the mayor doesn't have that power. So, you know, it's the right thing to do. It may have the effect of helping Democrats, but but that's, you know, that's the reason Republicans will oppose it, but that's not the reason we need to do it.
1: But you'll be battling against the attractiveness of the nice round number of 100.
2: Um, It's true. It's that that's an interesting dynamic you point out because I think that, you know, that round number sticks in people's heads and and it, it makes it seem like that's the way it was supposed to be when obviously you know, that's just where we ended up, um, right, we were,
1: we were at 90, uh, 96 for a long time until the late 1950s, and we got two more, well,
0: stuff, gentlemen, I hate to interrupt, but Adam, I know you have a, a hard stop in, in just a minute, and uh, Matthew, as always, thank you so much for uh, moderating tonight's conversation, it was oh, happy to do really it. fascinating, uh, I have not finished your book yet, Adam, I started it a few days ago, and I just want to tell everyone how it's, you know, structured, first part is really the history and the second part is modern and some of your prescriptions to have a better senate and I want to encourage everyone to pick up a copy of the book at Interabang by going to interabankbooks.com or at your favorite bookstore um, and I should add it's really well written which makes it a, a pleasure to read. I want to thank everyone. Please go to our website dfwworld.org or go to our YouTube channel and catch up on some of our past programs. And of course, please share our programs on your social media. Thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you again very, very soon. Good night.